Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. In this fifth season, we're speaking with visionary chefs, gardeners, farmers, organizers, artists, and scientists about migrations of all kinds. We'll hear about food and the experience of leaving home and in finding new ones, of decolonizing food traditions and tracing recipes through the movements of diaspora. Delicious Revolution is made by Devin Sampson and Chelsea Wills. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find all of our episodes along with pictures and more on the website deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Sandor Alex Katz is a fermentation revitalist. Since publishing Wild Fermentation in 2003, he has taught hundreds of workshops demystifying fermentation and empowering people to reclaim this transformational process in their kitchens. The New York Times calls him one of the unlikely rock stars of the American food scene. Sandor grew up in New York City, where in the 1980s he was an activist with ACT UP, demanding resources to address the AIDS epidemic. He migrated from New York City to a commune in rural Tennessee in 1993 after testing positive for HIV. He now lives down the road from the commune and travels the world teaching about fermentation. Sandor talks with Devin about creative tactics and community of ACT UP, the modern relevance of ancient food traditions and migrating from the city to the country. Sander, welcome to Delicious Revolution. I'm so happy to be talking to you a little bit today. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. So there's a ton of things I want to ask you about. Let's let's talk about where you live. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear a little bit about where you live now, what you've got going on, and like, and just what the springtime is like there. Well, um, I live in uh, Middle Tennessee, and we are definitely in high spring. Uh, the trees are all leafed out. The irises are blooming. Uh, we're planting everything in the garden, eating the earliest things out of the garden, lettuce and uh, radishes. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's high spring down here, and I migrated uh, down here 25 years ago from New York City, where I grew up. You know, sometimes the people in New York assume that Tennessee has no seasons and is hot all the time, um, and that's definitely not true. We we definitely have uh, four full seasons, but thankfully a, a shorter and milder winter than I grew up with in New York. So no, when when you grew up in in New York City, right? And, and yeah, what was food like in in your world growing up? Well, I mean. We always ate well. Um, you know, both of my parents liked to cook, and we lived in a neighborhood with uh, amazing markets and, um, you know, lots of vegetables and, and, and fruits available and uh, seafood and pickles. I mean, I definitely grew up uh, loving to eat pickles, and I would say my childhood love of pickles is part of what sort of, you know, led me into uh, my fermentation work. But, uh, but we, well, um, you know, we would go out for Chinese food uh, 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 sometimes and uh, sometimes other kinds of restaurants. But, um, you know, mostly we would eat at home and, um, you know, we were always expected to pitch in. So, you know, we all learned to learn to cook as we were growing up. I came across an interview you did for the uh, ACT UP Oral History Project, and I was just mm -hmm. reading a little bit about that, about that context. So um, it was kind of you, you 
grew up with a lot of politics in the house too, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, my family was definitely involved in, um, you know, various political causes. And I mean, I can remember as a, as a little kid going to some uh, marches and, and demonstrations. And, uh, and then when I was a bigger kid, I, I, I got pretty involved myself in um, political campaigns. And then as I got a little bit older, when I went to college, I got more involved, uh, you know, I would say in some, um, you know, activist uh, uh, causes. But, um, you know, ACT UP, which you're, which you're referencing, is, is certainly the, you know, sort of political cause I got, you know, most, most directly involved in. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about ACT UP because it's, um, I guess, in the bigger sense, I'm interested in talking a lot about radical community and queer community and the way that your work uh, flows through that. Um, but I'm also interested in this turning point of, uh, you know, working in politics and, and act up and, and, and West pride and, um, and then leaving New York and that kind of politics for, for rural Tennessee. So yeah, act up to me is kind of like a, there's a legendary moment in New York of, of organizing around survival and, and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, uh, 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 it, it definitely was that it was, it was organizing around survival and, um, you know, we all, myself included, um, you know, felt, um, you know, incredibly committed to it because so much was at stake. What kinds of organizing were you doing? What were the kinds of tactics and how did those emerge? And Well, I mean, you know, there was ACT UP, you know, one thing ACT UP was famous for was these surprise actions that we would call zaps where we'd, we'd show up, um, you know, at some, um, you know, office or, or, or some event unannounced. So there were lots of sort of small, you know, guerrilla actions, but also there were, um, you know, lots of big actions that were announced and where, um, you know, the objective was to get as many people there as, as, as possible. Um, I definitely attended a lot of demonstrations of, 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 of both styles. One thing I was did in ACT UP was I was, a, I was a chant leader. So, you know, just trying to get people riled up and, and, and chanting uh, loudly with, you know, relevant topical chants. You know, we also tried to, um, you, you know, especially for the bigger demonstrations, tried to get everybody up to speed and everybody sort of well-versed on the issues so that everybody could be a spokesperson and an articulate spokesperson and, um, you know, have a real clear sense of the message that we were trying to communicate. So I was, I was always very involved in, you know, these sort of teach-ins and trainings where we would share information. And I also always did postering, which would be like going late at night with a bucket of wheat paste and whatever the, you know, poster for the latest event we were publicizing and just walk from where the meetings were up to where I lived on the Upper West Side, um, putting up posters. Um, so I was involved in, in, in lots of different ways and, um, you know, it definitely was, um, you know, an incredible, uh, uh, moment friends were, friends were dying all the time and that added a huge sense of urgency to it. You know, I tested positive myself during that time, which, you know, added to the feeling of, of urgency. Although in terms of my own migration, I would say that, you know, me testing positive, you know, led me to asking some questions and realizing I needed to make some big changes in my life that ended up resulting in me leaving New York and moving down here to rural middle Tennessee. Right. So, so 
Can you tell me a little bit more about that moment of deciding to leave that one radical community? I guess I want to know what that radical community felt like and what made that such a special moment. Because it sounds, I mean, it sounds terrifying, but I've heard over and over again that there's something absolutely magical about it too. Well, I mean, the times were terrifying because there was disease with no effective treatments that was ravaging our our community. And, uh, you know, it was a scary time. But, um, you know, I think ACT UP made us feel... It made us feel our power. It made us feel like, like, okay, we're not powerless in this situation. You know, this is something that's happening to us, but there are ways that we can respond. And, um, you know, clearly this is like a, like a, it's a medical issue. Um, but to come up with, um, you know, answers for medical problems takes resources. And it really took years to get resources devoted to AIDS research. You know, especially when you had political leadership that, you know, like could only laugh like it was a funny joke that this was happening to gay people. Um, So, I mean, I think that we had this sense of like, you know, kind of righteous indignation and the activism really helped us to, um, you know, feel our power and find our power um, to sort of, you know, force the medical research institutions to put resources into finding solutions and, you know, ultimately to, um, you know, valuing our lives. Right. Right. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of, you know, fun to have like, you know, the president chuckling that we were having this problem. Um, but, um, you know, I think that it, you know, sort of triggered this sort of, you know, anger that, you know, was transformative, certainly in the lives of the people who were part of it. Um, and I would say, you know, transformative in the larger arc of the struggle for, you know, rights for LGBT people. Um, you know, and, and uh, I think had, um, huge influence over the culture at large. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you're doing this activism kind of in solidarity with, with friends and then you test positive for HIV. Um, this is a huge question, but, but what, well, like what shifted in you at that point? Um, well, it, it was, it was huge and it was, uh, you know, and it, it was a shock. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, I didn't go to get tested for HIV expecting to be positive. I, you know, I, I, I thought that I was being very conscientious and being very, very careful. Um, and so, uh, you know, it really shocked me when I, uh, tested positive and I would say, you know, I walked around for, for a few months you know, just kind of, um, like in a state of shock. Um, like, uh, you know, I couldn't quite believe that this was the reality of my life that I had to deal with. And, you know, by that time I had buried a lot of friends, but I also had friends who, you know, had been living for some years with, with HIV. So, you know, it's not, I mean, I would say my experience of, you know, within HIV, within, um, um, uh, ACT UP, you know, gave me a lot of role models of people who were not defeatist about it and who were going on living their lives. So, I, I mean, I'm really thankful for that because, um, you know, I didn't for a minute, you know, just, 
um, you know, think like, oh, this is it. Like, you know, I'm gone in a few years. Um, you know, I should figure out how to, how to plan the end of my life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a feeling of that at all. Um, but it did certainly change my ideas about, you know, sort of career and longevity. And, um, you know, I pretty much lost interest in my career in municipal government, um, um, you know, right away. And, um, you know, just started thinking about like, okay, well, what do I really want in life? You know, I don't want to be sort of, you know, planning a, you know, 40 year career and, and my retirement. I need to, you know, think about like, you know, living in the moment and enjoying life while I've got it. Um, and I would say it was sort of those reflections and, you know, just thinking like, oh, I need to, I need to really, um, you know, make some huge change in my life that, um, you know, made me open to the idea of moving to Tennessee. And, and the way that all came about is that I went to New Orleans for Mardi Gras in 1992. My, my roommates in New York had previously lived in New Orleans and they talked me into coming with them. And, um, at New Orleans, I met, uh, some of the people, um, you know, who lived at this rural commune in Tennessee. And I was very intrigued by them. And I was very intrigued by the idea that a, a rural commune could exist in a place like Tennessee, which I'd never really been to, but, you know, had all kinds of ideas about. Um, and so I went and I visited and I was very enchanted and I visited again and I felt even more enchanted and I started talking to them about, so how does a, how does a person go about moving in here? And then, um, you know, within a month of my, within a year of my first visit, I had, um, sublet my apartment, taken a leave of absence from my job and, um, moved into this, uh, commune in Tennessee, uh, where I stayed and lived for 17 years. Wow. Wow. And, and what were those first few months like living in rural Tennessee? Oh, it was great. Like really from the minute I arrived, I, I arrived in early March. So it's still wintry in New York, but down here it's like, you know, beautiful springtime and, um, you know, being directly involved in a garden for the first time. Um, no, I, I just, I loved it. I loved it. Just spending all my time outdoors and active, um, you know, hiking through the woods a lot, learning a lot about the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the plants and wildflowers and herbs of the area. Um, no, it was, it was, it was a really exciting time in my life. And, um, uh, I never looked back. I really, you know, after a couple of weeks of living down here, I really never thought about moving back to New York. Um, you know, it just, it just felt so right. And, and it continues to, I really like, I love, I love living down here. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I enjoy traveling. I, I, I get huge stimulation when I visit New York or, or other big cities. Um, but it's always such a pleasure for me to come home. And I really, um, you know, I love, uh, living amongst the trees in a lower density place. And, um, I have no regrets. I was just thinking about kind of the food traditions that have come out rural communes in this country, the way the, I don't know, the um, people on the farm started making tempeh and um, all these things that are part of our popular food culture have uh, a lot of them started on, on communes in rural, well, I mean, rural America, okay, right? Let's, let's, let's just understand tempeh did not start on the farm. That, okay, right, I mean, right. Tempeh started in Indonesia. The farm introduced it to American vegetarians, which is different than starting it. 
Right, right, right. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, there was this article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that I was quoted in that I found incredibly annoying. But <laughs> it, you know, it basically was that in the in the you know in the realm of food, the hippies won. And she was like, "Oh yeah, fermentation is a hippie thing." I was oh. like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> You know, like, okay, you look in the Foxfire books and you can see that the hippies learned it from the old settlers. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, I, I mean, sauerkraut is just a practical food if you're preserving, vet, you know, food without a refrigerator. Um, so, you know, to, to think that that was a hippie food just seems ridiculous. And so anyway, I mean, the people at the farm definitely did not in, invent tempeh and they would be the first ones to tell you that. Right. Okay, so let me rephrase it. There's there's this idea that even now in food scholarship and activism, there's this idea that new ideas come from these big cities. Mm. When I think about you and fermented foods, and I think about a lot of foods, they don't. They come from rural places, revitalizing them and remixing them. So they didn't invent tempeh for sure, but there's this revaluing I mean, I of I pretty much things. think nobody has invented <laughs> any new fermented Jesus. foods or beverages okay. since, let's say, before the time of Jesus. Um, I'm sure people have clever ideas about, you know, David Chang in New York is, you know, taking these ancient Japanese uh, methods of making miso and, you know, he's applying them to pistachios and to um, pine nuts. So, you know, he's applying a traditional process to ingredients that are very different from the ones that the process has always been applied to. But he's not really inventing a new process. He's just, you know, applying an existing process to a new substrate. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, really innovative experimentation going on right now and, and, and recombination. Um, and I think, you know, because of globalization um, and, and, and really the spread of information more than anything else, you know, people are, are, are able to, you know, access information about these rich traditions in one part of the world um, having to do with one kind of a food and applying them in, um, you know, new and sometimes very clever ways. Um, but, you know, they're, they're still totally. working with these okay, so, yeah. processes. And, and in terms of like fermenting, you know, I, I mean, like I've been asked a lot over the last like year or two, you know, to comment on you know, fermentation <laughs> yeah. right. as, uh, you know, a trend or a fad or, or something like that. And I mean, I just, sure. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to deny that there is, um, you know, a growing, um, you know, like awareness, um, of, of fermentation, a growing interest in the phenomenon of fermentation. You know, I'm thrilled that, you know, more and more people in their home kitchens and chefs and their restaurant kitchens are, are playing around with fermentation, but there's nothing, you know, new about fermentation. I mean, you know, I, I don't think there was ever a time when, you know, bread, cheese, cured meats, condiments, wine, beer, um, etc., waned in popularity. I mean, you know, certainly in the time when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, certainly when my parents grew up in the 30s and 40s, you know, these foods were just part of everybody's table and everybody's meal. And maybe no one was talking about them being Well, let's talk about that because that's the, actually you know, the other they were. migration I wanted to talk to you about is kind of the, the, the moving of these ideas and these methods and the knowledge about food around the world. Actually, my favorite book of yours is The Revolution Will Not be microwaved and I, and I love the descriptions mm. of like of traveling around doing workshops in these really different kinds of places like punk houses fundamentalist christians obsessive artisans and uh you know 
teaching fermentation, but also like getting to know these underground food movements, people making food that's sometimes illegally, you know, but I don't know, hidden a little bit from public view. Well, they're, I mean, they're, they're hidden in plain sight. I mean, I can tell you my story of how I learned to make sauerkraut for the first time. Sure. Yeah. The joy of cooking, the place where I went to learn how to make (laughs) everything else that I didn't know how to make, uh, uh, that I was trying to figure out. Um, and you know, it was just there, you know, it wasn't like it was, uh, extremely prominent or that, you know, the, the book was trying to lead people there, but there it was in, you know, very simple terms, you know, how to make sauerkraut. And, um, you know, I, I upped my yogurt game, uh, uh, uh from the reading the joy of cooking also, um, you uh-huh. know, uh, you know, our, our most basic references have information about about fermentation. You know, I, I think, you know, to me, the really interesting migration is about, um, you know, taking, you know, skills. They're, you know, essential cultural information that are key elements of how people make effective resor- effective use of the food resources that are available to them. And, um, you know, like along with how you grow the foods in the first place, how you save the seeds, you know, how you use fermentation to make use of the food has just been an essential part of what gets passed down from generation to generation. And if you're going to live, you know, among these people in this area, you're just going to need this information. And then, you know, over the course of the 20th century, you know, thanks in part to, you know, greater mobility, thanks in part to food mass production, refrigeration, the rise of the supermarket, um, you know, more and more, um, you know, convenience foods being uh, uh, available, you know, it was marketed as sort of liberation from the kitchen, liberation from the farm. But, you know, the flip side of it was, um, uh, you know, people deciding that it was no longer relevant to them to learn the skills of their grandparents and that, you know, they were part of this sort of exciting new world and, you know, they just didn't do need to do that kind of labor. They had the supermarket. Um, so, you know, we had sort of a severing in the sort of continuous passing on of these traditions, you know, at the same time as we've had a lot of like, you know, cultural resorting and, you know, most people, you know, would say that they're not the product of like a single cultural tradition, but rather an amalgam of, um, you know, a number of different cultural traditions and, you know, maybe they draw on, on different ones or maybe they don't really know what they identify with. But, um, you know, the world has gotten more complicated and, um, uh, you know, we have a lot of choices with food, but at the same time, most of us are fairly um, uh, disempowered. So, I mean, I mostly think about fermentation, um, you know, in terms of, you know, empowerment, um, you know, that the skills themselves are generally fairly simple and, and straightforward. You know, we need to break out of this very confining role of the consumer. And, you know, we need to empower ourselves with skills to, um, you know, take on a more balanced role of being producers as well as consumers. And I think that fermentation is only one element of that. But, you know, I think that we need to be 
reconnecting with the essential cultural information of how to produce food and make effective use of our food resources. And that, you know, this sort of system of food mass production and distribution, you know, is really a failed experiment. And, you know, you know, one of our, you know, most critical projects is to reclaim our food. It seems to me like there's a temporary moment in some ways, not that that system isn't going strong still, but there's this temporary moment of amnesia about fermented foods and a lot of food craft. But while that's temporarily forgotten from a bigger culture, there's plenty of people, radicals of all kinds, keeping up those traditions. And it's the moment comes for it to, um, you know, we just had this drought in California and now it's raining all over again. And plants that I haven't seen in five years are, are blooming again. I mean, I kind of see that that's, they've been hanging out somewhere where we haven't seen them. And that's kind of a lot of the role of these, I don't know, more radical folks hanging on to these traditions and adapting them. And, and then as moments right, they come out in mass a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Sure. You wrote this book, The Art of Fermentation, and it has this incredible draw on fermentation traditions from all around the world. Do you have this library of bubbling things in your garage that, that represent all these ideas that you've, you've picked up? Or, is, or do you have stories about um, some specific or surprising places where you've, where you've found fermentation along the, along the way? Well, okay. So first of all, you start, you asked about a library of bubbling things. I mean, I have a library of books. I, I, I mean, you know, an incredible amount of, of, you know, what I've pieced together has, has come from books and, and continues to. So sure. I mean, I have experiments now. So I was like, okay, I, I tried this experimental thing the other day that I've never done before. And it's for, um, uh, it's a Korean style of a starter. It's called meiju. It's made out of soybeans. And you soak soybeans, cook them till they're soft, mash them up, and then you make like a brick or a ball or a cone. You make a big shape of the um, mashed up soybeans. And then you put that in a bed of straw um, and try to dry it out a little bit and get it to start molding. Um, so anyway, you know, I mean, I did this, it's a pretty simple, straightforward process, but, um, you know, I, I sort of came to this after having followed a recipe by a Korean American food blogger for making gochujang that I realized at some point after, after I had made it was fatally flawed in that it had no real starter in it. And I have this book, um, um, called Korean fermentation technology, and I found in it a, a, a description of, uh, of this starter called Meiju, which is, was the critical piece that I was missing. Um, so anyway, you know, I rely on, I rely on books and the descriptions that I can find in books of how things are done frequently. I mean, I try things, but I can't, I mean, like living foods, you can't really maintain as a library unless you're going to keep on making them. Right. So, you know, all of these things that I make have, have a time frame and that time frame could be measured in hours or days or weeks or months or years. Um, you know, different projects I've done have different kinds of time frames, but I certainly don't attempt to, you know, keep all of these projects going all of the time so I can have, um, um, a library. And, um, you know, I mean, there are you know, a handful of things that I typically have going all the time. You know, I'm always fermenting vegetables. 
you know, different times of the year, you might catch me with different styles of fermented vegetables. From my recent travels in China, I've been making pao tsai, which is the Chinese fermented vegetables. And there's not certainly not just one style of it, but I've been experimenting with um, seasonings and making some sort of seasonings for it that make it, you know, really, really distinctive and, uh, and, and, and different. Um, so that's something I've been doing, uh, uh, lately. I've been maintaining a sourdough starter for 20 years. So, um, you know, sometimes if I travel, I, I, I just bury that in the back of my refrigerator, uh, and it's fine, uh, uh without, uh, ongoing maintenance. But when I'm at home, I'm, you know, feeding it every couple of days and, uh, making pancakes and baking with it and, um, things like that. Um, I have a yogurt starter I've been using for years, so it's not like I make yogurt every day or every week, but you know, about once a month I'll make yogurt, um, and you know, try to make enough to last me. Um, so I've got, you know, different, different projects that are, uh, ongoing. I, I just, uh, hosted a week long workshop here. So, you know, at the moment I have a lot of, of projects. I have a sweet potato fly, which is a lightly fermented soft drink. Uh, I have some sake going. We just started uh, a batch of miso. Um, so I've got lots going on actually. Let's see. I guess there's a question I want to, I mean, I'm, an, I'm almost embarrassed to ask this cause it's like, uh, <laughs> but it's like, uh, let's see what it's going right, to be. All right. All right. So here's it. No, I just feel like it's a little trite to ask like advice for the times, but I'm going to do it anyway. I read that. So you're actually an organizer working against the Trump development in a Manhattan at one point, right? Right, right, right. So sure. 30 years ago, I was involved, um, you know, uh, uh, fighting Donald Trump, t trying to stop, stop this, you know, wall of 11 70-story buildings that he wanted to build along the Hudson River. 11 70s. Wow. Drawing on like what we were talking about, about resistance of ACT UP, and we're drawing on like you've been a part of a lot of queer community and all this work with fermentation. Um I don't know what what's your take on on how we survive this political moment or how we resist it and find resilience. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had uh I wish I had an easy um answer to that. I mean, I think that you know, more and more people have to start paying attention, uh, you know, picking up their phones, expressing their outrage to representatives, showing up at demonstrations. But, um, you know, we, we can't really, you know, the, the, like, like with ACT UP, I mean, the, the stakes are really, really high. And, you know, I think that it's really, um, you know, imperative that, you know, people take the, the duties of citizenship seriously and, you know, take the time to, uh, you know, express their opinions when they're feeling it, to express their outrage, you know, and definitely to take to the streets and, and um, you know, be part of expressing resistance and making it known. I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's a little early to tell, but I feel like that's happening a lot. Or there's a lot of energy behind that. Well, I, I, I think you're right. I think that it is happening. I mean, I, I see it. I mean, I see it down here in a rural area, you know, the number of people, you know, showing up at the town hall meetings that the, the legislators have, um, um, you know, the day after the inauguration, I went to this march in Nashville. It was the, you know, the, the women's march against Trump. And it was, you know, by many orders of magnitude, you know, the largest demonstration I had ever seen there. Yeah. 
you know, but I think that, you know, showing up for a single demonstration um, is not enough. And, you know, we just have to make this part of our lives in in an ongoing way. Right. Um, and that's what resistance is, is like. It's like, um, you know, it's it's an activity. It's a priority. And I think that, again, to use this phrase, like our responsibility as citizens, you know, I mean, it's not just um, it's not just about voting, but it's about, um, you know, making our feelings known, uh, you know, especially when, um, you know, the people in power aren't interested in them. Right. Yeah. I guess the other the other side of that I want to ask you about is how do we uh keep that up in community or how do we um stay resilient when it feels like the attack might land on any one of our allies or or us at any moment do you know what i mean yeah well i mean i think that you know it's like community has to reinforce that like we have to sort of feel like you know our friends and the people we care about um you know are engaging in these things and this has to be sort of part of our activities like it has to it has to be fun. It has to be like hang out with your friends. Right. Like it doesn't have to be a, a separate thing. And what we need is for our, you know, our uh, social circles to, um, you know, make that activity part of the socializing. I mean, you know, it's sort of, it's no secret that a big part of the, you know, success of, of ACT UP was the social aspects of it. And, um, you know, sort of what a sort of scene developed within the organization of a, you know, social scene. So, you know, people wanted to hang out together. And, um, you know, often it was in the social context and the planning of events and the traveling to events, um, you know, the, that, that just became our social life right yeah uh, so my early attempts at making beer which i like followed mm -hmm. all the directions and i like i made okay beer but i was always like this is miserable it's just hours in the kitchen and then still someone was like no you're doing it wrong like you're supposed to do this with other people you're not supposed to like do it all by yourself <laughs> of course it's miserable <laughs> to make your own beer that way <laughs> Nice. And so then the hours in the kitchen, because, you know, it, it, it's like this phrase I used to use a lot. Um, getting there is half the fun. But like, you know, you just can't think of the time in the kitchen, the time going to a demonstration. You can't think about that as like, um, you know, your your punishment or your um, chore. You know, you have to, you know, you have to pull a Tom Sawyer. You have to find a way to, to make it fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, yeah. How are you doing that now? Does that come naturally? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I do a lot of things with people. Um, I spend so much time with people that I, actually it feels like a big treat when I'm by myself. So, you know, that makes, you know, even the, the things I do by myself, um, um, feel, feel fun. <laughs> right. You know, it's been a really great conversation, Sandor. Um, as, is there anything else that you want to talk about that I haven't asked about? Uh, Nothing specific. I guess I would mention my website, Holy which wow. is wildfermentation.com. And, um, you know, just say that, uh, you know, all of the uh, uh, workshops that I do, I post on my website. So anyone who's interested in, um, you know, learning learning more about fermentation, my website's a good place to, um, you know, look for uh, opportunities for that. 
Um, I have, uh, you've mentioned two of my books, um, The Art of Fermentation and The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, which is about uh, basically grassroots movements to uh, uh, reclaim food. And then I have a, um, a, another book, which is really the book that started it all, which is called Wild Fermentation. And that book was just revised last year. So there's a brand new edition of Wild Fermentation floating around. And, um, and mostly I just thank you for having me on your show. And, um, you know, since the, since the theme is, you know, migration, I mean, I'll just say that one of the most, uh, you know, consistently, uh, you know, interesting and exciting interactions that I have about fermentation with people is with immigrants to the, to the United States. And, um, you know, just, I have learned so much about fermentation traditions in different parts of the world, um, from immigrants, who have, you know, come to the U.S. and maybe one of the things that they miss about the place that they left is some of the food culture. And, uh, you know, it's just really, um, you know, thrilling, you know, either be able to be able to just like learn from people who have always been doing this, um, you know, because it's their, um, you know, cultural tradition and they brought it with them or, you know, helping someone who felt like they left those things behind, uh, figure out how they can recreate foods, uh, uh, from the old country that, that they miss. So, you know, in terms of migration and people's, um, food memories and associations, um, you know, fermentation is very, very, uh, uh powerful in that way. Sure. But, but wait, wait, give me, give me an example of, Oh, I mean, it's just from, from all over. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, I uh, went into this Asian grocery store in the outskirts of Nashville that was owned by this Burmese family and had, um, you know, such an amazing uh, interaction with them about um, uh, fermented Burmese tea leaves, which I, I bought some of them from them. Uh, at a conference, a sustainable agriculture conference I was at a couple of years ago, um, there was a Senegalese fellow who, when I mentioned the name Sambula, which is the Senegalese name for a, a condiment that's used very, very widely there, that's fermented from African locust beans, the guy just like lit up that I had heard of this, and he went home and got some of the Sambula that his, uh, you know, someone in his family had sent him from Senegal and and brought it to me. So just, you know, experiences like that. and. Um, and, you know, just because, you know, fermentation is so integral in food traditions in every part of the world, uh, you know, I've had, um, you know, beautiful experiences like this with people from lots of different places. Yeah, no, I bet. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sandor. I really appreciate taking the time and, and having the conversation. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place, made by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. And you can learn more at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. There we've got pictures and notes all about the interviews, and you can sign up for our monthly email. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, too.